Um, so when the Collins brothers came in, though, they were a little bit of a square peg in the round hole, right? I mean, they, no question. And, yeah. and you know, I like a lot of people who were James Brown fans. I was devastated. I was like, "What do you mean they all left? Who are these people?" You know. And and the first time I heard the new band, which for starters was much smaller because the the new band had. Initially, it was two trumpet players and one saxophonist, whereas the old band had been two trumpets, a trombone, and three saxophonists. Now you're down to one saxophonist who really couldn't solo very effectively, and two trumpet players who could play loud and hard and dance while they're playing, but really weren't great musicians. Then you had the rhythm section, which was amazing. I mean, it's, it's Bootsy and Catfish. Hello? But the horns were terrible. And so much of James's music depended on these horn hits. I mean, they, they weren't difficult parts to play, but they were important to the excitement of the music. So smart as he is, he very cleverly began to rearrange his music to emphasize the rhythm section and de-emphasize the horns because he realized they were weak. And gradually over the period of the first year, all of a sudden, I think by that, the, the, the changeover happened at the end of March, 1970. And I wanna say sometime in the summertime, all of a sudden St. Clair Pinckney was back. Then all of a sudden Fred Wesley was back. And now you got a horn section. And they started replacing the weaker guys. And then suddenly L.D. Williams was back. And then suddenly Jimmy Nolan was back. But that, that, that now I'm getting ahead of myself because uh, that Jimmy came back after Catfish had left. But Catfish and Bootsy were, were killer from the beginning. I mean, you know, anybody who's heard him and appreciates funk gets that. But the band as a whole sounded like a bar band. I mean, it, it really did. The, 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 first, the first few weeks I heard them... The, the night I came back to work, the second night I, I heard that band, and I was like, oh, my God, I've heard better, better bar bands. But Brown knew that. It was to make a point. And the other point, for better or worse, was that it kind of, particularly when Bootsy and Catfish left a year later, they were only in the band for a year, from March 70 to March 71. At that point, I think, not I think because he said as much, that Mr. Brown made a decision not to seek out stellar musicians unless he was absolutely certain they were loyal because he realized that the better musicians were only gonna use his band as a launching pad to get other gigs, that most of them wanted to be jazz cats and you know, move on. There's some truth to that, but also a degree of paranoia too, I think. Sure, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. In his mind, I, it, 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 and Fred Wesley has said the same thing, that it, it, it became a point where he wanted musicians where this was the best gig they were ever gonna have. And he would just rehearse them to death to make sure they played. You know, they had to be good enough to play his music, of course. That's a, that's a no-brainer. Um, but 
you know, with the exception of the fact that Maceo Parker, who was very loyal, who came back a couple of times, and Fred Wesley, who was there to help put these JBs in shape, um, pretty much for the rest of his career, it was a collection of musicians that pretty much fit that definition that like, okay, this is the best gig they're going to get. So they were there for 10, 20 years. And he didn't have those same problems with, with uh, musicians outgrowing the band or outgrowing the, the paycheck or, you know, whatever it was that drove the original guys away. Um, the musicians that he had from that point on, from the mid seventies on to the day he died, um, were great musicians for the James Brown band, but they weren't, with a few exceptions, weren't really going anywhere. Right. Well, so then it was his, it was his loss in a lot of ways because they couldn't help push him to. Well, that that's that's new, true new, too. New innovative areas, you know. So, yeah. although I'm not, <clears throat> excuse me. That's, you know, I, I, I don't want this to come off like I'm putting those guys down. Some of them are very close friends and some of them are great musicians. Oh, yeah. If I were putting together a funk band, there's a bunch of them I'd call in a heartbeat. But they were satisfied with that gig. And in terms of pushing Brown, they didn't have, because they were younger and they look up to him, whereas that, that 60s band, they were mostly his peer group. I mean, they were guys who grew up when he grew up mostly from the South. Their backgrounds were sometimes, in many cases, very similar to his. Um, in some cases, I think of the Parker brothers, I think of Fred Wesley, I think of Pee Wee. These are guys who've been to school. You know, James dropped out of school in seventh grade. But these were guys who had some, if not a college degree, and were still his age group. So he couldn't intimidate them. You know, it's like looking at your friend. It's, it's the same age. It's like, yeah, you're paying me, but, you know, you ain't my daddy. But all of a sudden, by the time you fast forward to the 1980s, most of the musicians in his bands from that point on were significantly younger than him. So there's that dynamic that, that I think enters into it is that He's not going to look to them for influence because he's going to figure that, hey, I've been around the block and they haven't. So what are they going to teach me? And by the same token, they're either intimidated or awestruck or both. So they're going to be afraid to suggest anything because he's been around the block and they haven't. So the whole dynamic, the relationship was radically different. You know, a lot of uh, viewers of the show and followers of the program, of course, are big Bootsy fans, as, as am I. Um, is there anything you can uh, share with us that, you know, was your impression? Uh, obviously, you said he was amazing on the bass. That was evident right away. But it's just a character, as a personality. Um, maybe, you know, the fact that he was, you know, high a lot of the time, whatever. What were, what were your impressions or, or your experiences with Bootsy at all at, at that time? Well, we, we didn't... We didn't actually spend much time together because the band was, mind you, James was still doing like mostly one-nighters, working five, sometimes six nights a week. So they were constantly on the road. My job was between the office, which was within the King Records complex in Cincinnati, and, uh, 
and on the road. So what would happen is um, I was working out of the office, usually Monday through Thursday, and then on Friday would fly out to wherever the show was, spend the weekend on the road with the show, usually traveling with Mr. Brown as opposed to with the band. I would ride the band bus maybe five, six times a year, but not constantly. So they were kind of in one world and I was in another. By the same token, we were, what we did share was the fact that we were kids. This was just like it was his first gig. He was a little bit younger than me, but not much. And, you know, this was my first gig. This was his first gig. You know, it's the first time he and his brother had been on the road with any anything of substance. I mean, they'd done a couple of one-offs backing Hank Ballard and Marva Whitney in some clubs. But, you know, to be full-time on the road on the, Brown, on the James Brown tour bus, which is on the highways 51 weeks out of the year, this was totally new for them. And Boosie's like 18. And I think I was 20. No, I was, I was 21, 22, but still green as hell so we were all just trying to adjust to this new life of sex drugs rock and roll you know all of a sudden it's like there's girls in every town who want to meet the guys who work on the show and there's you know this and that and this and that and of course um, the, the the bus was kind of divided between the smokers and the drinkers and you gotta remember this is still you know 1970 so you had the weed heads in the back, and that was all the young guys, and you had the gin, gin drinkers in the front, and the, or the rum drinkers, and they were, you know, the older guys. And um, I was kind of in the middle. I was never much of a drinker, but I appreciated a little herb back in the day. So that kind of united us. Um, but basically, they were so busy just trying to keep James Brown happy and enjoy the fruits of being on the road, and I was so busy trying to keep these shows sold out that we didn't really have much time to socialize. Um, you know, when, once the show came down, I'm in the dressing room going over the box office settlements with Mr. Brown and the band is getting on the bus or getting stoned or whatever they're doing. And I'm wishing I was with them. But, but you know, that was my gig. So so we didn't really, really spend that much time together. We spent a lot more time together when I went on the road with him uh, years and years later. But. But I mean, we, we certainly connected because it was like, look at us, we're young guys and, and we're in this, you know, absurd world of playing in arenas before 10,000 people every night and, you know, meeting pretty girls in every town. And, and it's just it's like any, any school kid's dream. Did, did you ever worry that uh, the draft might take you away from that dream you were living? I didn't worry about it. I had to deal with it. Absolutely. This is the Vietnam era when the draft was um, really aggressive. And um, let's just say I got a medical deferment without going into how it happened. But uh, okay. like, like there, there, were, there were a couple of people in the band who were also classified 1A. And of course, that happened to me soon after I left school, because if you were in college, it's hard to explain to people who aren't familiar with the draft all these years later with the voluntary army now. But um, back then, if you were in college, you'd get a deferment. So as long as I was enrolled in college, I didn't have to worry about it. But as soon as I quit school to go to work for James Brown, I knew inevitably I was going to get reclassified 1A. And they were going to threaten to draft me and ship me off to Vietnam or whatever, 
which I wanted no part of. It was a, you know, going into politics and all that shit. Um, but there were three of us, two of the guys in the band, Frank Waddy's talked about this quite a bit. So he's been very open about it. But there were, there were three of us who were ripe to get drafted that Mr. Brown somehow got us proper deferments. And we'll just leave it at that. <laughs> Good enough. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it, I figured that, like, that, that that specter was kind of hanging over a bit. Oh, you know, at that big time. time. Yeah. Big time. Big time. Um, so what are a couple of stories you can share with us uh, through those James Brown years before we, we move on a bit, but that um, maybe you're in, in the book uh, you want to touch on or um, maybe something that you haven't, you know, otherwise talked about that much, but is interesting? Well, you know, I, I think in one story, and there's there's tons of stories like this in the book, because that's really what I wanted to try to do was just bring out what it was like behind the scenes, because it's easy to romanticize that stuff. And maybe I've even been doing it in this conversation, but it wasn't all sex, drugs and rock and roll. It was it was a lot of work. It was um, dealing with all kinds of people, some of whom you wouldn't want in your house, you know, because it, it was a mom and pop industry with a lot of hustlers and a lot of people with ulterior motives who meant you no good, both financially and even sometimes physically. So, you know, you, you, you had to be able to think on your feet and, and deal with all kinds of people. And the thing that I admired goes back a little bit to our earlier part of our conversation about James Brown, that, that if people haven't done the research or, or seen, which I recommend them to see the, the HBO documentary that aired a few years ago called Mr. Dynamite, because it really does capture the James Brown that I knew. You know, he kind of became, I hate using this word, but it's the right word, kind of a buffoon on the talk show circuit in the later years of his life. You know, he'd come on David Letterman or Arsenio Hall or one of those shows and and just kind of be, I don't want to say corny, but just say, hey, I feel good, you know, and, you know, just and promote his latest record or whatever. But you never got the impression if you're young and you only saw him in the 80s and 90s that this was a razor sharp businessman who ran his business. And, you know, we talk about him being impulsive and changing his mind and so on. But dude know what he was doing. He was extremely knowledgeable about the industry. I mean, going to work for him at the time I did was better than college. There was there was nowhere you could learn the music industry better than it, at, at, at his feet. He knew every venue. He knew every the capacity of every venue. He remembered what the ticket prices were when he played there last year, so as not to overprice them this year. He knew the police backstage at every venue. He knew how to, I'll give you an example. He knew how to drive from every airport in America to the venue, to the hotel, and to the local black radio stations in every town without getting directions, no maps, no GPS, no nothing. Dude knew. It astounded me when I went to work for him. The, 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 he, he traveled by private jet. He owned his own little Learjet. <clears throat> Excuse me. 
which only seated like six people. So it was him and a bodyguard and a valet. And um, occasionally on the weekends, I would fly with him. Or maybe he'd have the band leader fly with him so he could go over things, you know, in the flight after the show. And, you know, what, what, whatever was on his mind business-wise, whoever, whoever that involved, that's who ended up in the jet with him to talk business and get to the next town. Um, so the, the usual routine was no limos. The routine was to have two rental cars waiting on arrival um, on the tarmac because your private terminal is private jet. And one would be like a, oh, it might be a, a, a Lincoln Continental or not even that. It could be an Oldsmobile or a Buick, but a, 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 a sedan, you know, a four door car. Um, rent a car, like from Hertz or Avis or something, nothing fancy, and then there would be a station wagon. And the routine was when the jet landed, he and whoever he wanted with him would jump into the sedan with James behind the wheel and take off. And either we'd go directly to the local black radio station to hype the night show, or we'd go to the hotel, or most times we'd go straight to the venue because it would be late afternoon. And then the station wagon would wait back for Danny Ray or one of the other guys, whoever might be with him at the time, to unload the clothes and whatever else luggage was, was on board the jet and would follow us by five or 10 minutes. And, um, Somehow we always got where we were going. But what amazed me is he knew his way around all of these damn cities. And some of these cities I'm visiting as, as the, the new kid on the block, I'm visiting for the first time. I'd never been to Charlotte, North Carolina. I'd certainly never been to Tulsa, Oklahoma. But damn, if we didn't land in those cities and dude would get behind the wheel and I'd be like looking for a map or something. And Mr. Brand, you know where we're going? And yeah, I have the address of the venue. Son, I know where I'm going. It was amazing. He knew every promoter. He knew the building managers. When we would do settlements, he'd always say, anytime we had a successful show in an arena, theater, what have you, he'd always say, did you tip the manager? Leave a tip with the manager. And we'd slip the manager of the building 50 bucks, 100 bucks. Now, this is 1970 money. Um, so it doesn't sound like much, but in those days, most of those buildings were city-owned. And the guy who worked there would be a city employee who was getting a decent salary, but nothing outlandish. He was the kind of guy where 100 bucks meant something. Well, they also controlled the bookings. So next time we're coming back to that building nine months later or a year later, and we called to book a date, then just maybe we're going to get first shot at the good dates, meaning a Saturday or early in the month after all the checks flew, because you dealt with, you know, a, a lot of our consumer base was uh, not well off financially. So our most successful shows were usually in the early part of the month. We, we, we knew when the Social Security checks flew and when the welfare checks flew. And we would book certain cities based around those dates. Um, you know, depending on the demographic of that city. But it was also important to get availabilities in the venues. 
So having all the building managers on your side was an obvious benefit. In the same way, having disc jockeys was a benefit because they'd play your records maybe once more than the, than the next guy's record. So he, he had this whole concept of marketing and promotion that was decidedly mom and pop in nature because that's what the business was. But he was light years ahead of everybody else because he, he, he knew exactly what he was doing and why he was doing it. And it, it, it astounded me. It really was like going to school. Um, which leads me to a story. In those days, he hardly ever canceled a show. Why? Because we were promoting our own shows. We're the ones who rented those buildings, booked and rented the buildings, paid for the advertisements. He was running the show in-house. So it was his money at stake. If he decided he didn't feel like doing a show, he took the loss. Not some other promoter, not some building manager, not Live Nation. It was him. So we didn't miss dates. If you saw an advertisement for the James Brown show in that era, he was going to be there. There was a show in Providence, Rhode Island on a Sunday. And for whatever reason, I wasn't on the road that weekend. I was home in Cincinnati planning on a Sunday afternoon to watch a football game and just kind of chill and assuming everything was okay. Until that morning, Bobby Bird called me from a hotel in New York and said, Mr. Leeds, I'm with Mr. Brown. You need to know Mr. Brown's very sick. I said, what do you mean he's very sick? He's in bed with the flu. He'd been up all night throwing up. I had to help him to and from the bathroom. He can't even walk. He got a high fever. He can't hold food down. I tried to give him a glass of water. He spit that out. This man got the flu and it's bad. He got bad flu. And I said, well, are we going to cancel the show? He said, I don't know what to tell you, Mr. Lees, but the only thing I can tell you is if he can't do no shoulder shape he's in. He can't even get him to go to the bathroom. So I got leery and just, well, I'll call you back in a couple of hours. And I started thinking about it because this was a first for me to have to deal with this kind of a decision. And I wasn't comfortable making the decision. But I thought about the fact that the earlier we canceled, the more we would save. Because once the ushers have shown up, once the ticket takers have shown up, once the janitors, that were, all the people that work for the building, the security, the off-duty cops that come to the show, once all of them show up, they got to get paid. If I cancel the show early enough, maybe we can cut all those costs. Not to mention the convenience to the fans who bought tickets and maybe you get on the radio and explain to them that the show's postponed and, you know, hold your ticket for a future date. So I'm thinking of that too, just the, the PR aspect of it. But, but I'm scared because this is James Brown. So I wait a couple hours. I call the hotel back. Bobby Bird answers the phone. Miss Leeds, he's out. He's out. He's down for the count. I ain't never seen this man so sick. I said, Bird, you realize what I got to do? Well, I don't know what to tell you, but he ain't talking. He's out. The doc came, gave him some medicine, gave him some, a shot of something, and he just passed back out. He ain't ate in two days. He's, you know, so on and so on. So I take a deep breath and start calling. Now, that wasn't easy because it's a Sunday and there's no cell phones. This is 1971. 
And most businesses, radio stations that you want to call to get stuff on the air, to warn people that the show's postponed, the arena, you get switchboards. If anything, because it's a Sunday and nobody has answering machines and nobody has cell phones. It's another era. I finally sent a telegram, Western Union telegram, to the manager of the building. He called me at home and gave me the direct lines to the radio stations. And it took about an hour and a half to pull the plug out. Then I had to reach the road manager to tell him not to unload the truck and the bus and don't set up the gear, but pack up and go to the next town, wherever we're playing next. So it took a good couple hours to accomplish all of this. Bobby Bird had told me that James's wife was going to come up to take care of him in the hotel in New York until he would get him back on his feet until he was better. So once I got all this done, now it's about six o'clock. The show's supposed to be eight o'clock. I call the hotel again just to see how he's doing. And Mrs. Brown answers the phone. I said, oh, thank goodness, Miss D, you're with him. I know he's so sick. Is he, is he any better? She said, how would I know? He left here before I arrived to go to Providence. that's when I knew I was going to get fired again (laughs) he got off the plane in Providence and went to the venue to find out his show had been canceled this is a man who got out of a sick bed with a fever of 103 to fly 100 miles and do a show that I had canceled I told my girlfriend I said okay around 7.30 8 o'clock this phone's going to ring and it's going to be very unpleasant. <laughs> and he went ballistic. He started off, Mr. Leeds, I love you like a son. I love you for caring about me. But, and then his voice just rose and rose and rose and got louder and harsher and louder and harsher. He said, but Mr. Leeds, you ain't a damn doctor. Are you a doctor? And, and this, this tirade went on for about 10 minutes, and he got it out of his system. I still love you, son, but you ain't a doctor, and I ain't too sick to do my job. Slam, banging the phone down. Well, I didn't get fired, much to my surprise. But about two weeks later, I caught the flu. I didn't come in the office for a couple of days. Then it turned into pneumonia, and I was really, really sick. I mean, sick to like, probably should have been in the hospital. Strep throat, couldn't eat, same thing that they were describing with him. And I literally was sick in bed at home for, I mean, I'd I'd get up out of bed to go to the bathroom and get dizzy and almost fall over. It was that kind of, like that kind of flu thing. After the fourth day, it was payday, and I told my girlfriend, call the office so you can run by and get my check because we needed to pay the rent or, you know, pay the whatever. So she called me and said, well, there's no check for Mr. Lee's. So I called Mr. Brown. He was on the road somewhere, Mr. Brown. I said, Mr. Lee's, I thought I told you a couple of weeks ago. I ain't too sick to work. If you're too sick to work, I'm too sick to pay you. You call me when you're better. (laughs) Wow. So 
you know, are you doctors? No. <laughs> we, had, we had another guy I worked with. His name was Bob Patton, God rest his soul, who really was kind of my mentor. It, 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 he'd been working for Brand about a year longer than I did. And he taught me the ropes in the office and the whole office politics and how to deal with Brand and so on and so on. And at one point, Bob's wife, Vicky, was giving birth. The show was in New Orleans. I was with, with Mr. Brown in New Orleans at the venue. And um, and he had expected Patton because I guess we had flown in for a meeting or something to go over business, whatever, whatever. But at any rate, Patton was in Nashville in the hospital with his wife who was giving birth that very evening. So Brown says, where's Miss Patton? And so he's in Nashville. His wife is in the hospital. Get him on the phone. So I found a payphone in the hallway outside the dressing room, found, somehow found him. God knows how we did that in those days. I don't know. The, the, the joke in the old days was that, that road manager's briefcase held two things, an ounce of weed and 10 rolls of quarters for the payphones. <laughs> That's actually pretty accurate. That's how it was back then. And, but somehow I found Patton. And... Um, so he gets on the phone. I said, wait a minute for Mr. Brown. So I overheard the conversation. And Mr. Patton, where are you at? Well, he knew, but he's going to act like he didn't. So Patton says, well, I'm in, I'm in Nashville, Mr. Brown. I'm happy. Like, we're father of a brand new baby girl. Mr. Patton, you a doctor? Your wife had a baby. She don't need you. She needs a doctor. I need you. <laughs> You're supposed to be here. So, yeah. so what that's, does this mean? That's hard line. That's as yeah, hard line as it gets. Yeah, it it was. Um, but I mean, this is a guy who who, you know, he never took no for an answer. Never met a challenge he didn't think he could overcome. And he just expected the same from everybody else. And and you know, be, because he set the table. You really couldn't argue with him because this was a guy who, if, if his wife was giving birth, he'd have been on stage somewhere getting paid. I mean, when 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 his God rest his soul, when his his eldest son Teddy tragically died in a car accident, and and James and Teddy were very close. Um, we all went to the funeral, so on and so on. And and James was a basket case, but the next night he was on stage. And I was, just, I was just like, Mr. Brown, how many shows do you want to cancel? And you want to be home, you know, with Teddy's mother and, you know, just just grieve for a couple of days, as, as we say in Jewish, and Miss Leeds, I got to pay for that casket. We're going to Detroit tomorrow and do the show. And he did. I don't know. I don't know how he did it because it, it wasn't because he didn't care or he was wasn't sensitive. I mean, he was he was a wreck. But he did the show. And, and so so when when you have that setting the example, you can't bullshit your way through stuff. You know, you, you just have to try to live up to that because it's it's like he's setting the example. It, it was the same. And here's a segue. It, it was the same with Prince. Who was equally demanding. He was less volatile, but equally demanding of your time and attention but nobody worked longer hours or harder than Prince. He'd be the first one at a rehearsal and the last one to leave. And he'd wear the band out and they'd be grumbling and looking at their watch and they'd be hungry and, you know, tired. And, and 
he'd stay back and keep rehearsing by himself and then go to the recording studio and stay up all night. So it's like you could never look at him and say, I'm tired. Because this is a guy who's working twice as hard as you. How, how much with Prince do you think it was innate in him versus him knowing uh, how James Brown ran things and kind of to try to emulate that a little bit since, you know, obviously James Brown was one of his big idols as well. So Yeah, I, I, I mean, he certainly was aware of it. Um, I, I know that because I was basically hired by Prince based on a resume that had James Brown on it. He told Stephen Farnoli, get the guy with James Brown. If he can do James Brown, maybe he can do me. You know, so the, the implication being that James Brown is the, the taskmaster, so you can deal with him, and maybe you can deal with me. And that, that was in the middle of the 1999 tour, and he'd already been through at least two tour managers, I think, before I got there. So um, it was it was already renowned as a tough gig. Um, but I just, you know, I, I had the training. So, so in that sense, he was right. It's like, if you can do James Brown, you can do Prince. Um, and you, you had enough of a buffer between the two where you were okay to kind of take on that kind of similar situation again, I guess. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> and, and the thing with Prince is at least the first couple of weeks was easier because you were told not to talk to him until he's used to you. You know, whereas James Brown was, to use one of Bootsy's favorite words, he was very loquacious. But, but you know, Prince was like, mum's the word. I mean, when he did not... He had to get comfortable with you before he would really say anything more than just, hello, good morning. And that was just it. And the first two weeks I was on the road, that's about all I got out of him. I would come to the dressing room and say, it's time to go to the stage, give him his calls, do the things that the job required. But there was no casual conversation. The first day, it was a shake of the hands, welcome aboard. You know, that was it. Nothing. No small talk. No. Well, I, I saw that tour uh, at Long Beach. Uh, I don't know if you were. Yeah, part of it. yeah. you were. Okay, Michael so was there. Fantastic. I mean, it had the time and vanity and him. And uh, Michael Jackson was backstage. You know, you knew that he showed up at the Long Beach show. I I didn't know that, um, but um, I was glad that I was able to see them before it sort of splintered, and you know, the time wasn't kind of right. part of that anymore. But um, did you see those tensions kind of mounting? Were you, uh, you know? Close enough in, to instantly, instantly, because yeah. I, I came right after the flare up with Jimmy and Terry over the uh, miss the show they missed in Texas because they'd been recording in Atlanta, I guess, with SOS band or something. And um, so the shit had already hit the fan. So, I mean, it was it was very obvious that the whole thing was in his relationship with Vanity was kind of on the rocks. They really weren't together anymore uh, as a couple. They were. You know, they were friendly, and she would occasionally spend the night on his bus, but but they weren't they, they weren't a couple, quote-unquote. And were you already so, a, a Prince fan coming into that situation, or were you, how well? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Strange, strangely enough, a, a girlfriend had dragged me to a show on the Controversy Tour, before which I had not been a Prince fan. I knew who he was, but it was, you know, okay, Controversy's really funky, but I, I was a Funk fans, straight ahead funk. I didn't, I wasn't listening to rock and roll or punk or anything but old school funk and soul. And if anything, maybe my taste was a little old fashioned by then. I mean, we're talking 1980, 81. 
And uh, um, what Prince was doing really wasn't that interesting to me until I heard controversy, the, the, the song controversy. That was the first one of his joints that I really, really, really liked. But still, I didn't, you know, I didn't, I didn't realize he was this mega talented, gifted person. He was just another young guy with a couple of albums doing R&B in a falsetto that I thought was pretty formulaic until the controversy album. I wasn't really familiar with Dirty Mind. Um, so I was not a Prince fan. Girlfriend dragged me to the show. She happened to work for a radio station. So she literally had front row center. And I mean, literally row one in the middle. So the first time I ever saw Prince was in the Stanley Theater in Pittsburgh from the front row. And I spent the night looking up at his crotch, which was not something that I was planning to do. <laughs> was he still wearing the bikini briefs? Yes, 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 whatever it was. He in the trench coat on the controversy tour. But, um, but I was blown out. It 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 just changed my whole vision of of what was to come. Um, because up until then, if you if you weren't George Clinton related. Or Earth, Wind, and Fire, or Cool and the Gang, uh, Isley Brothers. I mean, that's the stuff I was into. And I didn't want to hear synthesizers playing horns. I wanted to hear horns playing horns. I didn't certainly didn't want to hear that Lynn drum machine. I wanted to hear a real drummer, you know. So to me, it was like I'm not interested in this. I, I wasn't even giving it a fair chance. But that show just completely destroyed me. I'm like, oh, shit, this guy's really got the goods. And equally important, the production was so good. I mean, it was his band was as, as tightly rehearsed as the classic James Brown band. It was, and, and I later learned this was the first stop on the tour. If you look at, at, at all the... the Pierre Nelson's books and Dwayne Tudal's books and all the books of trivia about Prince. The first controversy show on that tour was Pittsburgh. And, and you would have thought they'd been on the road for two months because that show was just, just ironclad tight. The lighting impressed me because it was musical. It wasn't just a bunch of lights for effect, which was so typical in those days where early years of rock and roll lighting in the 70s. It was just a whole lot of effects just because half the audience was stoned and then if you put on a good light show, it would enhance their high. But these lights were musical. It was like the lighting director was, was a member of the band. And it, everything about it just absolutely blew me away. And I remember saying to the, to the, to the girl, man, that's the kind of shit I want to be part of. And it was just one of those offhand, you know, remarks. So long and short of it is, um, I moved to New York right around that time. Moved back to New York. It was back and forth between Pittsburgh and New York, and um, got a call to go on the road for Kiss, the rock group, and took the gig. Was, now I'm a freelance tour manager, so it's like whoever calls first, that's where you're going, because otherwise you're sitting home not getting paid. So I, I did a tour with Kiss, which was fun, um, primarily because I didn't have to sit and listen to the music. I just had to get them to the gig, get them settled, and then go off and prepare the hotel for their return. So it was, it was a great gig. Um, 
At the end of the tour, their production manager was a guy named Tom Marzullo, who coincidentally was also the production manager for Prince's Controversy and now the 1999 tour. So I'm in catering, kicking it with Tom, and he says, what are you doing after the Kiss tour? And I said, I don't go home and wait for the phone to ring. He says, you got any interest in Prince? said they just got rid of their tour manager and they're looking for somebody, but you would just be running the tour and Prince's band because Vanity Six has their own road manager and assistant and the time have their own. So all you got to do is worry about Prince's band. His bodyguard gets him around. You don't have to worry about his moves and just the tour moves. You know, if you got to charter a flight or buses and, and hotels, the usual kind of travel related stuff. But the tour's been out long enough that, that you know, it, it should be pretty easy if you can deal with Prince. Hey, why not? So literally it was like, Kiss tour one night, got on a plane, met the Prince tour, and got in their bus the next night. So it was from one to the other. And it was, it was a pretty odd transition because the Kiss gig required you to wear suits and ties. They wanted all their... Uh, box office settlement people, road managers, anybody who was in a managerial capacity on the KISS tour, they, for all I know, they're still like this. They wanted them in a suit and tie, very Madison Avenue type. That was their thing. Go figure. Which was okay with me. James Brown was the same way. He always had to wear a dark suit and tie, even in the office. No casual clothes. Um, so that's all I had with me on the road was a couple of suits and a bunch of button-down shirts. You know, real Brooks Brothers. And um, so I get off the plane and go to the venue where the print show is. Don't know a soul there except Marzullo, the production manager, and walk up the ramp backstage. I think it was in San Diego. And um, everybody's in sweats, <laughs> jeans and sweats. And they looked at me like I was from the IRS. I mean, it was like in the next day when we got on the charter flight to go to Phoenix, I think. Um, and I'm walking on the plane, you could just feel every eye. I mean, Morris Day looked and kind of snickered, and Vanity looked and kind of snickered. And, you know, all these people that I'm meeting for the first time, and they're all looking at literally like, oh, my God, he must be a tax man. I mean, who dresses like that? Everybody's in sweats. So I just realized I better get to the next town and buy some sweats in a hurry. But, um, you know. But that, that was Prince. I mean, it was, it was like it just fell in my lap. It, it, it's like I've been very, very people say I'm lucky. I don't know if what it is, but very blessed in that the, the, the only gig I ever chased was James Brown. Everything else just kind of fell in place, just either in the right place at the right time or you'd get a call up from nowhere from somebody. And I mean, yeah, it's because they know what I do and they know my past record. And I mean, like any industry, if you're halfway decent at what you do, you're going to get some calls when there's vacancies because people have to fill the vacancies. So, you know, once you've got a rep, it's it's all good. But I worked for all these people that I just would almost pay them to work for because they're right up my alley. And I never chased a one of them except James Brown. It's, it's go figure. Wow.